I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Anne-Marie, and joining me on today's episode is Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we thought we'd change things up a bit. It's been a slow news week, so we've decided to stir a bit of controversy. In the era of Prince Harry's book spare, apparently the only way to get a bit of attention is to lay it all out, the good, the bad, and the debatable. Fortunately for all of our listeners out there, I'm hopeful our analysis today won't excite Freud as much as Prince Harry's musings did, but uh, anyway, I'm delighted to say this intro wasn't written by ChatGPT. Hopefully uh, my job will be safe for the short term. Following on from our discussions over the past two weeks about Coca-Cola and Southwest Airlines, Myself and Emmett thought it would be worth examining our own investment boundaries and the ethical debates that happen behind the scenes of controversial stock picks. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Anne Marie, and joining me on today's episode is Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we uh, we thought we'd change things up a little, just a little. It's it's been kind of a slow news week, so we've decided you know to stir a bit of controversy in the era of uh, Prince Harry's book spare. Apparently, the only way to get a bit of attention is to lay it all out. You know, the good, the bad, and the debatable. Fortunately for all of our listeners out there, I'm I'm, I'm hopeful our analysis today won't excite Freud as much as I think Prince Harry's musings did. But uh, anyway, I'm also delighted to say that that intro actually wasn't written by ChatGPT. I, I actually did that myself. So um, fingers crossed, my job will be safe now for for a few years. Um, I just we we wanted to kind of launch in following on from our discussion over the past two weeks about Coca-Cola and Southwest Airlines. Um, so myself and Emmett thought it would be worth examining our own investment boundaries and the ethical debates that happen behind the scenes of controversial stock picks. So Emmett, I'm going to hand this over to you first. What do investment ethics look like to you? Well, Emery, there are these in- invisible walls in which we all live, and they're they are our ethics. And when I look at you know, what are ethics? We really need to understand where they come from before we can start to kind of apply them to our investing decisions. So I went to the BBC and it said that at its simplest, ethics is a system of moral principles that affect how we make decisions and how we lead our lives. And then went on to explain that the term is derived from the Greek word ethos, which makes sense, uh, which is like custom or habit or character. Uh, I think it said disposition. So now you know, that's where ethics derives from, from a verbal sense. But going a bit deeper, you know, ethics covers all these human dilemmas, like, you know, how to be good and our rights and our responsibilities and even how we use our language, like how we speak and chat to each other here is governed inside by our ethics. But most importantly to you and me here is, you know, what are the moral decisions uh, and how do these influence our decisions as investors? Like if somebody approached you, anne and said, hey, do you want to invest in my very illegal startup, the very next thing I expect you to is, you know, call the police. So there's these really clear, crisp red lines, but there's these blurred lines. And I think we kind of uh, refer to ethics to decide where we are in the blurred lines. Like on first consideration, you could decide that your 
ethical framework is like a mishmash of what you learn from your parents or your guardians and your friends and your teachers and so on. But when you look at the bigger picture, the, these these constraints, these walls inside our minds have been derived from religions, philosophies, uh, culture, whether it's Western world culture or just local country culture. And it's no small thing. And arguably your ethics are your end point from thousands of years of human development. And it's interesting though, because ethics don't really show you the right answer to a problem or a moral problem or some kind of investing conundrum. All they can do is eliminate some of the problems or kind of help you work through them. And then after that, it's up to each individual to come to their own conclusions. And I have little doubt, no doubt at the moment that we've listeners who are deep subject matter experts on ethics and you know, all its nuances, because it's a really complex area. But from an investing perspective, it comes down to something like, you know, hey, would you invest in Krispy Kreme donuts? I hear they're delicious, but ridiculously unhealthy. Is there an ethical line there that maybe I perceive? And does it cause me anguish to cross it? Like, am I absolutely okay buying Krispy Kreme donuts or does it kind of skew with this belief set? But here, here's an interesting angle, Anne-Marie, following on from that debate in my car yesterday when we were driving into the office where you'd mentioned that thing about Coke uh, and you explained to me the amount of energy and effort and dollars that they use to lobby and, and sponsor, I think you said, studies which supported yeah. sugary products. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, well, all, all of these kind of led me to conclude you wouldn't invest in Coke. But here's a question. Would you accept a great job offer from Coca-Cola? Like putting a few hundred or a couple of thousand dollars into Coke stock for 20 years is one thing. But what about working for this giant, loved, iconic brand for possibly the whole of your career where you're paid hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars for your contribution. Would you refuse to invest in Coke but take the job? Ooh, it's hard because I think, do you, would you almost have to, I think I'd have to make a pros and cons list. I think I would have mm. to sit down and see, like, could I determine was Coca-Cola a net good or a net bad for the world? I think that would be my move because... Coca-Cola does an awful lot in terms of like investing in local communities. They sponsor an awful lot of scholarships in the United States. They do all these type of things. But then you always have to come back to the plastic pollution. They're the number one plastic polluter mm. in the world. And we keep seeing in research more and more that microplastics are really awful for the human body and they're in absolutely everything. And I would have to kind of sit and think and go, okay, you know, even if you were working in the coolest department within Coca-Cola, you know, if you were working with their scholarship fund and you were thinking, this is great. Every year I get to give away millions of dollars to kids who really need it to go to college. Would there be something non at the back of your brain that would say, yeah, but you're also contributing somehow to climate change because you are making money, like your salary is coming from the company that's generating money off of this plastic waste. Mm. But when you Google, you know, what are the most unethical public companies, everything is in there. 
It's absolutely oh, yeah. crazy. It's hard to find a business that the, you know, the jury of everybody hasn't returned a guilty verdict on. Like everything is unethical. I couldn't believe the list. It, you know, the Fang stocks, all my favorite stocks. You literally, if you Google a company name and ethics, you'll find an opinion out there from somebody that this company is unethical, which of course is their opinion of what the business is doing. And it really does come back to the, how blurred are the lines. And it's funny, you, you what you just said to me there caused me to pivot my opinion on Coke because, because of our chat and it, it started off in a conversation about sugar, my ethical boundaries. Well, you know, people need to control their own intake and everyone knows that too much sugar is a bad thing and the rise of diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of, I think I said to you in the car yesterday, but does that mean McVitie's Biscuits is an unethical company? Because if you eat a hundred biscuits a day, you're, you know, you put your life in danger. But what I didn't what didn't dawn on me was what you just said, which is they are the biggest distributor of plastic, which I have a serious problem with, an absolute serious problem with, um, a bigger problem than I can even go into with. So uh, I agree with you on the mic, but I never even thought of that. And with that just one sentence, that blurred line for me, Coca-Cola went right across it as in, no, I wouldn't invest in the biggest distributor of plastic in the world. Yeah, and I also think like one of the points you touched on with Coke is the idea of it being such a famous brand, of being like, wouldn't you love to be associated with something so iconic? Mm. But I actually don't drink Coke. I like I don't like Coca-Cola. Not so, even at like, Christmas? No. So like I understand that Coke is really famous and like, you know, the polar bears with the red scarves come out every year and um whatever. But yeah, I actually don't like Coca-Cola. And I understand yeah. that they own like dozens of drinks, and I'm sure I drink some of them. But when it comes to like the main central product, you know, the historic legacy, I'm actually not all that invested. So oh, I think really? if I went and worked at Coca-Cola, I think I would feel like a fraud because I'd be like, I'm pushing this drink that I don't even like. You know? <laughs> so would you be walking around with like a like a can of Pepsi in a Coca-Cola tin? No, I would just be like, I'd be looking for like a fresh squeezed lemonade or like, I don't know, like I even take, I said this to Mike last week or two weeks ago, like I even take issue with Coca-Cola sells an awful lot of bottled water. And I think bottled water is the biggest scam in the world. Like I think mm. they just allow these massive conglomerates to buy up like water access and then they just sell it back to people. And I just, I think that's so wrong. Um yeah, so I don't think I'd be able to, even Coke could offer me a million dollars. I don't think I would be interested. Okay, well, hold, hold on. Let me test you a little further. What if they said, Anne-Marie Kingsland, we want you to be the CEO of Costa, the second biggest coffee chain in the world. We've ethical beans. All our mm. cups are recyclable. Uh, we only do good. And we're going to give you a million a year. Yeah. But it's a fully owned division of Coke. Would you still, would you go up to the top of the family tree? Do you know what else I don't drink though, Emmett? <laughs> what? Coffee. <laughs> I don't drink coffee. They do green tea. <laughs> yeah, but come on. Anyone can make green tea. Like, oh, you put a tea bag in some hot water and you've made a tea company there. I, yeah, no, I don't think, I just don't think it would be for me. Maybe if you were in like a really cool division and you, I guess if you could like weigh it up and say, my work in this individual division will somehow, in a small sense, counteract the <laughs> overall evil maybe but i just don't i don't think it's possible you're yeah, cracking you're cracking okay so now we yeah. have you in costa's green tea division and you're in yeah. charge of making sure that the ethics are right uh, yeah we've bought you we've bought okay. your soul you big plastic pusher okay fine fine i'll oversee the 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 tea okay well i then have a question for you about you know can you make an influence on the inside i want to talk about you know 
probably like a, a, a companies that most people probably write off in their investment portfolios. You know, if they're buying individual stocks, I don't know if most people kind of weigh into these. You know, we want to talk about like the Tony Starks of the world, you know, the weapons makers, the gunslingers, the war merchants, these kind of businesses. You know, we're talking about like the Northup Grumman Corporation, Smith & Weston, Lockheed Martin. These type of companies, which oftentimes, you know, people will say, Jesus, it's a great stock. It's got great returns. But, you know, you have to have that weighing on your mind of, hey, I own this business. Um, so I actually want to go back to 2018 and talk about in the wake of the Parkland shooting, a number of companies suspended their partnerships with the NRA in the United States. And there was a large public outcry against gun manufacturers. And at the time, Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock, sent a letter to any gun manufacturers the firm happened to be holding. And he basically said, hey, you guys need to be focused on being a societal good or you risk being removed from our portfolios. And this was kind of all under his conscious capitalist push. But interestingly, around the same time, Warren Buffett gave an interview basically saying it wasn't up to him to determine whether or not Berkshire should be doing business with gun makers. His exact quote was, I don't believe in imposing my views on 370,000 employees and a million shareholders. I'm not their nanny on that. People individually should very much express their views. I don't think that Berkshire should say we're not going to do business with people who own guns. I think that would be ridiculous. Now, here's the kicker. As of the end of 2022, Berkshire Hathaway owns no gun stocks, and BlackRock is the largest shareholder in four of America's largest gun and ammunition companies through their index funds. So, Emmett, what does more public good? Investing in a controversial company and pushing for change, you know, via the board, which, I mean, that's really only an option if you're like a massive institutional investor, or keeping your money out of the conversation and just looking for opportunities elsewhere. Mm. Well, yeah, you're right. That is a big money question, which is based on having enough capital to take a meaningful stake in anything and have an influence. So if you see a quote unquote unethical business that looks like it's a great investment and it's positioned to grow, should you go for it and try to be that catalyst for change? Okay, well, it's very difficult. It's really difficult because again of these blurred lines of ethics that we all carry. For example, we're talking about something there where there's in gun manufacturers, there's well, well-established views, you know, so with Northrop or Smith & Wesson, you're either pro or anti-gun. I think that's quite a clear red line. And yeah. look, is that true? In America, I presume you're either one or the other. Yeah, I think most people would be pro or anti-gun. Or I even think that like people who would have an understanding of they could come up with logical reasons being like, oh, I understand why some people own guns. I think they're still uncomfortable. They would be uncomfortable with the idea of being like, oh, I'm owning gun stocks. I think that's quite a clear mm. line. Yeah, it's funny because my cousin uh, was in the NYPD. Mm. Imagine an Irishman in the NYPD. <laughs> Crazy. And um, <laughs> what next? Flying pigs. And I remember him once saying to me, you know, curing America of guns is like saying we're going to rid America of ants. It ain't ever going to happen. And I think over here on this side of the Atlantic, where guns are legal and not held by I would say 9,999 homes out of 10,000. In fact, probably more. Just guns are not a thing. We have an opinion that's sculpted by that, and therefore we know which side of the line we'd fall on. But, you know, again, coming to that, whether it's a crisp red line, wherever in America is broadly pro or, or anti-gun, when you bring it to something like Pepsi, which sells sugar and other stuff, that blurred ethical line comes in. Anyway, look, for me, I'm unambiguously more Berkshire than BlackRock. And I'd stick with finding stocks that are in less 
hot ethical areas, as opposed to investing with the intention to be that catalyst for change, which in fairness is nigh and impossible if you're buying into a gun company to promote an anti-firearms agenda. So like Larry Fink writing that letter, uh, I didn't know about that story, but that to me sounds like virtue signaling um, because mm-hmm. the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And at the end of the day, <laughs> Bur- Warren said what he said and then just doesn't hold gun companies where Larry Fink, clearly his letter was leaked or somehow is this ethical uh, drive. But uh, our uh, BlackRock is a, is a big uh, firearms investor and that's fine. That's their prerogative. There, mm-hmm. there, there's no laws broken, but again, it comes down to what happens inside your head. What how does this make you feel? Are you comfortable in being an investor in BlackRock or indeed directly with Northrop or, or Smith & Wesson? Yeah. And I think BlackRock at the time, they kicked back being like oh, the vast majority of our holdings in this are because they're in indexes. So they were like, we didn't pick the stocks out themselves. You know, it's just mm. they came along with the, with, the, with the group. But I have read a number of economists say, but you do have tremendous weight on these companies. And if you really wanted to do something radical, you could go and say, right, we own 20% of your business. We're pulling out a few, you know, if you don't stop selling semi-automatic weapons, we will no longer mm. hold your business. And so BlackRock tried to wash their hands of it by saying, they're in indexes. We didn't pick them out. It's- You're right. And then, you know, uh, firms that are established for the creation of capital and capital appreciation, they're doing their bit, bit for good. Mm. Um and I suppose becoming social crusaders might fly in the face of what they're out to achieve. I mean, something you said to me yesterday, which again was a very, very well-made point about like, so if you decide I'm not going to buy Coke for whether it's sugar or plastic, by association, does that strike McDonald's, for example, the yeah. biggest distributor of Coke in the world? So the the icy tentacles of a, of a giant business stretch far beyond the landscape that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so I the interconnectedness, like it's too, Mm. it's too like for example, all time favorite stock Costco. They very famously sell Coke, and that was always a big debate. Like anytime Coke tried to raise prices, Costco kicked back. Said we're not, we just won't have you in the store then. And every time Coke comes back, and so you're saying, well, you know what? If Coke is part of the Costco package, am I if I hold Costco, is it the same as holding Coca Cola stock? You know, it's it's really interesting because I looked at a website called ethicalconsumer.org, who, as part of their twenty fifth birthday celebrations, asked its readers to vote for who they thought were the least ethical company of the last 25 years. I mean, what about a niche? Um, and Nestle won, quote, unquote, they won. <laughs> 15% of voters said Nestle is the, you know, they're just not good citizens. Um, and Monsanto, Monsanto were number two. And um, then in third place was, in their, in their uh, words, the UK's number one tax avoider, Amazon, right? Ooh. So if you decide, I'm not going to invest in Amazon because of A, B, or C, whether it's how they treat staff, pay staff, unionize, this, that, the other, whatever, I don't know. I just don't believe it's possible to exist without doing yeah. business with Amazon. AWS is basically hosting half of planet Earth internet. Like if you really are going to purge yourself, you know, it's like someone who decides they're going full vegan overnight. They suddenly realize, wow, this is a tough journey. Of course you can do it. Of course you can do it. But the reality is if you said, I'm not going to own or do business with anything that Amazon touches, I swear you're in for a really tough life. Yeah. Well, 
maybe can I we'll push into kind of that idea of the gray areas, you know, the when there's not a kind of clear boundary in place. And I really thought about that in reference to tobacco stocks. You know, I think like we tend to hear people are like, I don't want to own tobacco, but I'm fine owning alcohol and marijuana because I think most people are kind of like they're a little bit better. You know, they're not as addictive. They're not as bad for your health. And admittedly, like we have a fair number of alcohol stocks that we like to talk about. You know, we've got Diageo and Constellation Brands, Boston Beer Company. You know, those are all kind of ones that we're like, yeah, that's a great diversification opportunity. But I then started to realize kind of what you were saying in your ethics intro, that a lot of my preconceived notions about these vices come down to like cultural touch points and like my exposure to the products. And then also just like some of it is like political because I am often like marijuana deserves to be legalized. It's because as it's an important step to criminal justice reform. But does that also mean that I think marijuana should be this like product that's sold everywhere? So I was like, right, can I try and quantify the boundary between these? You know, can I find studies that says, right, yes, tobacco is way worse by this percentage. And then I can take comfort in that say, oh, okay, it's fine. I can own alcohol stocks. And so from what I have seen, I, I kind of went looking for like broad overview articles and studies that were trying to say, you know, oh, we've looked at 100 studies. Here's approximately what's com- what it comes down to. Basically came out that saying that cigarette smoking is the top risk factor for lung cancer. And a 2017 federal report in the United States basically said that there is very few links between marijuana smoking and lung cancer. Similarly, there was a major publish, uh, major study published in 2018 that said that drinking is less harmful than smoking so long as you're drinking less than five glasses of wine or beer a week. So, okay. So there is kind of a bit of difference there. However, in the processes of doing this, I did realize there's a huge like research shortage. Because marijuana is still a class A federal drug in the United States, it's really hard to get access to to do any kind of research. So when it comes to long-term studies that would be able to conclusively say, hey, you should be smoking less than this amount of marijuana, or you know, if you're exposed to more than this at a certain age, you know, it increases your risk for this or that or the other. Those studies actually, there's not too many of them. So it's actually kind of difficult for us to compare the two together. Mm. And on top of that, um, the largest ever moderate alcohol and cardiovascular study was undertaken by the National Institutes of Health in 2018. However, the alcohol industry sponsored the research. And so you always – it's the (laughs) same with Coke where you're like they sponsored all the research on the sugar taxes. Surely there's some underlying agenda there that they're trying to push. Mm, of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, every big business does it. And if you've worked in a big business, you know that there are reports and measurements made that were, you know, back-channeled, you know, yeah. so, and were sponsored in some way by the big business. And, you know, once we're kind of aware of it, for me, it has to get broadly thematic. Like, as we talk through this, I I have never and will never invest in a tobacco company. And that's Inside, that's outside my ethical red lines. Just ain't going to happen. Don't, I have an ethical problem with it. I have a few others. I think at the end of the show, you, you just said to me, let's pitch a business we admire but wouldn't invest in for ethical reasons, which is going to be very interesting. But like, uh, I've never admired a, t- a tobacco company, but I've absolutely stonewalled them. I've just ignored them. So then there's some of the best um, investments for certainly in, in 1950s onwards was tobacco companies, but I, you know, never for me. And it, it is definitely, there's broad categories that you just have to decide you're striking. And then others you go, okay, look, I think I can live with the fact that there's areas of discomfort in here as there are in virtually every business. Would you consider if there was, you know, if marijuana became legalized in the United States and there were kind of large marijuana companies that began emerging, would you ever consider a marijuana company? 
Oh yeah, definitely. And I've looked at them and I think uh, we, <laughs> we wrote a paper. Uh, do you remember we went where it was like uh, buy low, sell high? It was about uh, marijuana stocks. I thought it was a, a great, or, yeah, there was a, it was a kind of turn of phrase where we kind of looked at five like marijuana. That. Yeah. And um, there was some, none of them, none of them worked out, you know, it's still a little early The mostly Canadian, I think Charlotte's web and then med men. And I can't remember the other ones. And certainly I, I researched these, uh, companies uh, for a period of time when it was the hottest trend imaginable. Like everybody just wanted a marijuana stock and it didn't cross my moral boundaries for whatever my ethical boundaries for whatever reason. I felt that um, I'd read enough to convince myself that it isn't as big a problem as alcohol or uh, tobacco. Okay. Well, what about you? I, yeah, I would kind of be the same. I did realize today while I was reading up that a lot of people argue that yes, you inhale like marijuana the same way you inhale tobacco. So there is a risk of lung cancer, but people also are like, but marijuana has some like benefits for some people. Like oftentimes you hear of cancer patients using it for pain management or to control inflammation. And I was like, do you know what? That is such a kind of positive note for them because what is tobacco doing in terms of being a kind of positive health force in your life? You know, the only thing in tobacco is essentially just. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe. I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Addictive, whereas I do think like marijuana is historically far less addictive and then also has, you know, some kind of medical benefits. So, yeah, I don't think I would write it off, but I'd be kind of the same as you in terms of like there are no decent marijuana businesses at present to invest in. I know Constellation Brands, the alcohol. Yeah company has some exposure to it, but they have not had any success with that division no. of the business. So, yeah. And unfortunately they were also are the owner of Corona uh, beer, yeah. which <laughs> yeah. I presume has taken some brand damage in the couple of years we've gone through. I think yeah. 20% of Constellation brands revenue came from marijuana about three years ago. They yeah. had a pretty big line item on their balance sheet. Yeah, it's a. They were invested in a Canadian operation, I think, mm. which was, but it was attempting to find ways to. I don't think it was like they were selling joints. I think they were trying to figure out how to get marijuana like into drinks and into consumables instead, which would be a kind of more interesting way to go about it. Mm. Probably less risk mm. from a, a personal health standpoint. Well, I do think it's a mega trend. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. you can go down to my local 
like spar convenience store and see cbd infused soft drinks like it is it's there it's out there now i wonder will a body of of medical evidence emerge that says it really shouldn't be sold to anyone who wants it it should be a certain age category or profile as Mm. as is the case with alcohol depending on where you are um yeah but again ethics i don't know for me i'd say well marijuana okay look it's been around since the earth began spinning uh i'm not a consumer of the product but like doesn't i don't have any problem with it yeah okay i want to maybe go into a specific stock instance i want to push you on something you kind of already hold that has i don't know is it appropriate to label it as controversial but it is becoming more controversial and that's activision which um is currently attempting to be purchased by microsoft that seems to be delayed every week but activision has had a, a kind of two to three years of rough rumors come out about it so they have had quite a creepy ceo uh, who had a number of like sexual harassment reports against him. It is famously a very sexist work environment. A number of female employees have come out against the company, basically saying like it was incredibly hostile. I couldn't work there. And they are known for not paying their employees a living wage and demanding an absolutely insane number of hours. And then typically, this is not just an Activision problem. It's a broad video game problem. Once the game is released, they tend to lay off staff because you know it's like, oh, the project is done, which is not the way you want to be treating your staff. But you have owned Activision for... Am I correct in saying more than a decade? Nearly. Um, I'm out of Activision for donkey's ears, but I did own it for over a decade. You're nearly on the money. And I did invest and sell before those revelations. And it's a tough one because when I buy a stock, I genuinely commit to holding for as close to the rest of my life as possible. It hasn't worked out yet because I'm still alive. Um, so, <laughs> but um, but I do have a two-pronged approach, I guess, to this. Because you're right, it's those that kind of fall outside my ethical lines before I buy them. And then those that fall outside my ethical lines after I buy them. So if I don't own a stock already, I just remove it from my watch list of potentials. As I did, for example, with Unity Software and Horizon Service, where I pitched it. I didn't buy it. And then a whole bunch of reports emerged, Forbes sticks uh, in my mind where they reported that the now former CEO sexually harassed female colleagues, he propositioned them, and I think he threatened one if she spoke about his behavior. And I just thought that's gritty, grimy. Uh, You know, the truth has two sides. We all know that we're all adults, just two sides to every story. But there was a real body of evidence that this particular individual was not playing the right game. It was just he was misbehaving in a horrible way if everything that was reported was true. And if I so I said, no, it's off the watch list. And that was that. I didn't have to justify it. I think in the rising community I just said I'm removing this for an ethical reason mm-hmm. and it was gone. So like that that's easy because you haven't invested your cash. But if I recall correctly, Activision um it was sued by the state of California only about only about two years ago. And the lawsuit at the time described a culture of sexual harassment, as you said, where where females were discriminated against, they were paid less. Um, and for me, there's no way I'd invest in a business unt- after such revelations until it's very clear there's been atonement and forgiveness and move on and clear out of the problem. Now, when I already own a business, this is, this is where it gets complex for me. I generally don't sell as easily because when I bought 
the known activities of the company were totally fine by me. I was cool. I looked at the business. I looked at what it does. I assessed the risks. I thought about its opportunity. I read about the leadership team. I go through a process and I landed at a bottom point, which was a red, green or amber light. And I, if I've bought it, obviously it was green. Um, and then as time goes by uh, and stories come out about a cultural malfunction or a change of use of the product, uh, things change. Like Facebook or Meta for me is the is the you know pole position example because I am today a small shareholder and as everyone knows at at this stage, oh multifarious problems. It, I mean it's had a per track record when it comes to treating the personal data that people share on its platform and enter what was it, Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then there's been an absolute range of uh, lawsuits and fines. And only a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Irish data regulator slapped a ginormous fine on Meta. Uh, there's a lot of things about Meta now that I just don't love. And I'm a tiny microscopic shareholder. So at this moment in time, I'm nearly there. I'm nearly ready to sell. I don't wish to even look at the business. I, and I, I, I don't think there's malintent you know, and there's very few businesses founded that make it big where there was any malintent by the founders, the employees, the board, but it creeps in. Yeah. Like in the words of Metallica, it's creeping death. You know, this kind of comes in like one atom at a time. And, you know, so people put undesirable stuff up on Facebook and next thing they had to employ armies of people to keep an eye on that and purge it and clean it and act mm-hmm. in their best behavior. And then you realize they're suddenly becoming judge and jury over things that, frankly, a business shouldn't be the determinant of 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 go or no go. So, um, yeah, I've I and in my life, I've only ever sold one stock on the spot for something that absolutely skewed massively with my values. And I'm going to refrain from naming it because I don't really want to open that particular store. But you know, it is something I do very cautiously. But I think I'm going to have to. Um, shoot meta out of the proverbial canon wish it well and get another capital gains tax bill thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) i took a bath in them when they were 19 bucks and i've held them ever since and uh oh my goodness i could be the next president of ireland if i sold them at their peak but hey good luck yeah (laughs) i always think i sometimes think think about meta and, and think about where the turn was and i do think it was the over concentration on the monetization and the advertisement. Like when I go yeah. back and look at how things went, like the way the Cambridge Analytica scandal happened, the way the 2016 election scandal kind of happened, it was because they just took money and said, great, mm. this yeah. is fine. And there was yeah. no kind of higher thought in that. And it just seemed kind of like a, it was like a lapse in judgment, but it also seemed that like no one was kind of monitoring that. They were, mm. they just, you know, they just allowed us to keep flowing and keep flowing and didn't really think about any of the consequences. And I just have not seen any kind of correction of that behavior, any kind of discussion of, oh, we've done wrong. They continue to have issues and they have an incredible chokehold on internet access in developing countries, which means that they are even more powerful in those places. And they still seem to be com- just completely uninterested in taking that responsibility on and understanding what it means from a political standpoint. And I mm. just, I, that is a, that is a weird way to make money. It is. And, and so, a lot of giant businesses are, sorry, sorry, Anne-Marie. Uh, I did, a lot of giant businesses now have a chief ethics officer. Yeah. And this individual needs to have unilateral power over everything, like a high court judge. 
the last word is theirs. And I know like there's businesses I admire really greatly like Airbnb and they take ethics so seriously, so seriously. It permeates throughout the whole organization. I just wonder, does that person or is that role or team exist inside Meta and Friends? You have to think it does, but do they have a unilateral power? Mm. And that's where it kind of, I know we've, it, it, we're drifting into a whole different podcast. In fact, which you did before Christmas about like, you know, Zuckerberg is yeah. the chief everything, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, and that's where I guess no woman or man can be one, be everything effectively. And, and unfortunately, well, we have a different story going on there. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about one more kind of stock that, that we've discussed maybe previously, and that's ShotSpotter. Um, so for those of you who don't know, ShotSpotter is a, a company that creates this software that listens out essentially for loud noises. It's very popular in cities in America, and it's meant to help police identify when gunshots happen. So, you know, a loud, and a loud noise happens, it gets reported, someone at ShotSpotter reviews it, they listen to it, they look, look if there's any footage, and they go, yep, yeah, you know, that was a gunshot, we're going to alert police, and they'll head over. And it's been kind of a hotly discussed stock. Lots of new jurisdictions and cities seem to be buying into this technology, particularly in the wake of like the large amount of gun violence that has gone on in the United States in the last several years. Um, but I am quite familiar with a charity called Campaign Zero, and they seem to have uh, risen again in the wake of Black Lives Matter and a, a number of gun violence in the United States. And uh, their whole focus was how do we help reform police stations kind of across the United States? Like what are simple, easy steps that we can give to everyday citizens to that they can go to their you know community council and push for these kind of simple steps? And actually one of them that they put out was that they said that ShotSpotter should not be allowed. They said it's a waste of money and that the system actually isn't refined enough to be in any way beneficial. They basically said, listen, by the time a noise gets reported to the police, by the time it gets cleared by their system, it's usually 10 to 15 minutes later, which means the police show up, probably the perpetrator's already gone, and then it creates a hostile environment that police just start interviewing anyone who seems to be around, and it increases the likelihood of a violent incident occurring between police police, and you know anyone who happens to be in that area. So that was kind of my thorn in the side that I noticed with ShotSpotter. I'm mm. wondering if you have any opinion on the stock. That's a very interesting one because, you know, uh, I wonder is it analogous to a drugs company that sets out to cure one of the plights of humankind and not succeed? Like, mm. yeah. Like, ShotSpotter. I don't think, again, back to, I don't think there was ever malintent. I think it was a business set out to do something. Like we're looking, America needs a cure to gun crime. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the foundation of the state and everyone's right to carry a gun and firearms, etc. And that's good. And good people know they either are, 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 are not, God, I can't even get it out. They're either for or against carrying guns, but everyone is aware that there's guns everywhere. So kind of those solutions to cure the problem are required and that's what shot spotter set out to do and their ceo who i spoke to is a person of good intent i'm quite sure Mm -hmm. and um like for me it feels like the drugs company that didn't quite land the cure they wanted so is it an unethical investment uh you see i think the narrative that you described there certainly is it's while it might be true, it strikes me as quite cynical. But you know what? That doesn't mean they're mutually exclusive. Like, I mean, I did read that ShotSpotter's um, contract states that the technology doesn't prevent 
gun violence, which mm-hmm. makes sense because it doesn't. It it hears a gunshot and alerts a watch room. And but what kind of worries me is they've never published the results of their validation testing. And you know if yeah, so allegedly I haven't gone searching for it, and that's <laughs> that's where the boundaries break down with say a pharma company which is going through FDA phase one two three whatever, whereas now we're kind of. We're buying into a technology that is there to ultimately to reduce gun crime so that people are aware, or at least to help the investigation of gun crime. But if it's not effectual, mm, I don't know. But that's again, is that ethics? Like, do you think this is an ethical debate? It's actually, now that I think about it, it's more with ShotSpotter in particular, I think it's. It's hard because it reminds me a lot of the company that me and Mike discussed last week, Clear Secure, which is like mm. the the company that that provides solutions for the TSA. And I'm kind of like in an ideal world, the TSA would be doing this and a public company wouldn't have the ability to come in and make money off of this. But mm. because there has not been a public solution created, this company is going to try. And it is a thing yeah. of should we fault them for trying and people – from then a political standpoint, which is obviously what Campaign Zero comes at it from, they say this is a waste of public money. You know, should we not be reforming the police in other ways? Should we not be investing in our community in other ways? You know, why should we allow this tech company to, to take tens of millions of dollars for this software that is 50% good? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, do you fault ShotSpotter for that or do you fault the environment in which it's allowed to grow? Mm-hmm. You know, do I fault Clear Secure? for taking advantage of the fact that the TSA doesn't have enough money to innovate. And do I then say, well, I won't invest in them. But it's just, it's not Clear Secure's fault that the TSA has no money. Mm. Yeah, I for me now, it's funny, all of this, I don't, for me, none of these come near an ethical boundary for me. Mm. Yeah. You know, they, they, they certainly come, uh, they, they, they raise a lot of other very pertinent questions. But the kind of, for me, ethics is... It's kind of, um, it's a feeling Mm. almost Mm -hmm. more than an absolute, it it ends up being a rational decision. I'm either going to sell or not buy this stock because I don't like A, B or C, but you're getting there. But for me, when I think about all of the companies we've just discussed, they, you know, they don't come in, they don't encroach into that zone inside my head for shot spotter. And what was the one you just said? Uh, Um, Clear, clear. Clear secure. Have they got a ticker that's yes? Is that their ticker? Y O U. It's you. Oh, you. Yes. Great. Great ticker. You. Okay. Yeah, good. good yeah. So for me, like they, I, I would look at those, and they certainly don't uh, come into the ethics framework for me. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they shouldn't for the next person. Fair. Well, I'm going to. We're going to wrap up today, but I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate, which is we're going to follow on from our story last week about Southwest Airlines about how they had an absolute meltdown over Christmas and left you know tens of thousands of people stranded in the United States. We finished that segment last week where Mike basically asked, "Is this going to have a massive knock-on effect? You know, are all these thousands of people going to say I'm never going to fly Southwest Airlines again?" And I had the unfortunate conclusion that. No, because Southwest often in many ways operates as a monopoly because it's flying in a lot of markets where there's no competition from any other major airline. So like it's kind of like Ryanair. You know, if you want to fly from Dublin to Sardinia, you have to get on Ryanair. There's no alternative. So Ryanair could throw you out in the middle of the ocean and you'd be like, well, no other airline to go with. (laughs) And that Um, is an ethical line. (laughs) Yeah. um, But I actually, we're coming back to this to say that actually Southwest might be doing a pretty good job at this because I have read 
a lot of reports and several I've seen lots of tweets about people talking about Southwest, you know, in the weeks following the incident, how they've been apologizing. And my absolute favorite tweet came from a, came from a guy named Adam Dubard, who said, quote, while Southwest is a borderline criminal enterprise, I will say they've been somewhat efficient at issuing my refunds, new flight reimbursement, and rewards points for my troubles. Came out of it with a free, albeit delayed, flight from Charleston to Baltimore and $600 worth of Southwest points. <laughs> yeah, so, there's a guy who is completely, you can buy that guy. He moved yeah. from calling it a criminal enterprise with, I got $600 in Southwest points. That is yeah. so funny. And that kind of made me realize sometimes these moments of crisis are when you earn customer respect and loyalty. And when people go, do you know what? Yes, Southwest left me stranded on the floor of the Denver airport for three days, but they gave me $600 in Southwest points and they were very apologetic. And so this has meant that I am somewhat considering we'll be giving a second look to Southwest as a stock because I am impressed with how they're treating their customers. And I think that's a nice sign. Do you know the power of an apology is strong? It really is. Yeah. I I had an encounter with a big business once, and it was pretty grisly. You know the story uh, where uh, effectively the keys of my home uh, were handed to a criminal enterprise in a digital <laughs> manner, and um, the business didn't just say sorry, and that was the only thing I wanted. So it's kind of like it could it, it you know it kind of matters if a business is strong enough to say we are really sorry that that happened it was never designed it was never intended it shouldn't have happened it won't happen again hey here's six hundred dollars in <laughs> southwest points <laughs> it's good did they buy you a new house if they, they did not work? no it was digital it was the it was a digital crime um but anyway look we'll go there another podcast perhaps someday okay. or maybe All never right. fair okay well to wrap up today we're going to do an elevator pitch but a little bit different we're going to talk about a company that you are impressed by and you'd say, yeah, I would invest in that, but you won't do it for an ethical reason or boundary. Emmett, mm. you can go first. Well, when we come back to ethicalconsumer.org, who basically said <laughs> everyone has broken the score, one out of 20, score two out of 20. It had everyone in there from Tesco to Asda to everything, like from their list, which has been voted uh, in from their listing public, their viewing public 25 years going, uh, I would choose Amazon. But that's not really my answer. I think um, from my own experience in over 20 years, I've just downright refused to consider or buy any company that derives its revenue from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. um, and do you know something? 20 companies, just 20 companies produced a third of global CO2 emissions from 1965 to present day. 20 companies, wow. one third. And a lot of those have been magnificent investments. There's no question if the only thing that matters is capital appreciation. And there's big names in there. Saudi, Saudi Armco, Chevron is number two. Gazprom, ExxonMobil Gas is number four. And so on, all the way down. Names that we all know. And in fact, names of companies that provide products that we've all benefited from. But it just would turn my gut to invest in them. I would kind of I would agree with you there. Um, I also I have like it's it's not a I don't have a specific stock in mind, but I do have a commodity in mind, which I think in the wake of uh, the big short, a lot of people turn their attention to water as something to invest in because Michael Burry very famously, you know, the final quote in that movie was the only thing that Michael Burry invested in now is water. And I would agree with Michael Burry that, you know, the rise of climate change and droughts, I think water rights are going to be incredibly important in the future. And there's probably a lot of money to be made. But 
it's got to make you feel icky to make money off of water shortages mm. and people needing access to fresh water. And I, when I was doing research for this, I actually read up that um, the state of Arizona is having issues at the minute because they sold a lot of their water rights and access to aquifers to Saudi Arabia mm. because Saudi Arabia grows alfalfa in Arizona and then they harvest it and they ship it back to Saudi Arabia to feed to their cattle to make like premium steak. But they have been emptying aquifers, like absolutely taking all of the water, so much, like more than they were contractually obliged to. And so now the state of Arizona has to sue Saudi Arabia to gain access to its fresh water. Oh, my goodness. That is yeah. so just, oh, my goodness. It's a castle of corruption. Yeah. And so it's just like there's definitely like someone is going to benefit from the system, which is terrible to think. You just don't want to be, you just don't want to be anywhere near it. I just, no. Do you know, 20 years ago, um, my wife and I went to Australia. Was it 20 years ago? Yeah, it was 20 years ago. And we went to, are you old enough to remember Steve Irwin? Do you remember yeah. him? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So we went to, Aust- I think his zoo is called Australia Zoo. Um, yeah. Great name, very original. And he, what he would do with, he was making good money in Hollywood at this stage um, or wherever, <laughs> the, the TV industry. And he was investing it all back in land. He was procuring vast, vast tracks of land. And we met him just by chance. And he said, oh, I'm investing all my money in land. And we were like, really? And is it an investment investment? Like, what are you going to do with it? Oh, no, I'm just protecting it, mate. He literally just everything he did in my eyes with rose tinted glasses was good because he was buying vast tracts of land. What I thought you were going to say about Michael Burry um, was that he was investing in water like Steve Irwin, <laughs> which oh, is, no. no, I'm not looking for a return in capital. I just don't want anyone to hurt the animals. I thought you were going to say, no, Michael Burry's buying vast amounts of water to make sure that those who need it can have access to it. No, the way that he's going about it at the minute, I read up on, is he was like, oh, the best way to invest right now is to look for countries that have excess water that easily make food. So actually, Ireland is a good candidate for that. New Zealand is, Argentina. We have a massive excess of fresh water, which means we're very good at growing lots of different types of crops. And then you want to see that food being sold to countries that don't have access to water. And he was like, that is where we will make money right now as we wait for like literally like the Mad Max water wars to kick off. That was basically what he said. So it's not great. Speaking of Australia. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. What can well, we do on that, with that very negative note, that's it for today's show. Remember, <laughs> if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter on that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us, and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.